passage of scripture this morning um, in uh, a, that's uh, correlated, of course, to Acts in our study. We're really only going to study two verses of the book of Acts, but uh, we're going to be spending uh, some time reflecting on the truths that Peter shares here in First Peter. We're going to be re- begin reading in. Uh, I was having a hard time deciding whether I want to start at verse 8 or verse 13. We're going to start at verse 8. I know it makes it a little longer. We're going to read through chapter 4. Okay, so we're going to read, uh, and I was going to skip a section in the middle, but I decided against that. It just somehow seems wrong to me. <laughs> so we're going to just read the whole text, and please follow along. I'll read out the New King James Version, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Through chapter 4, 19, God's word declares, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his prayers are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. If we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, Lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards 
of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And if anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Well, last week I basically confessed that I didn't get through the message, which brings us into this week with really just a few verses of chapter 5 to complete, but we want to build back up what we had a little bit last week to get to this conclusion. Uh, We had, uh, of course, seen them, the apostles, all of them, arrested. For two of them, this is their second round of this activity. We find their response very similar to what we have seen in the past, and that is a, uh, I like to use the word defiance, but it really wasn't that haughty attitude, but rather a confidence that they would obey God, that nothing, no threat, no provision of man would dissuade them from doing so. So we find them repeating that again and again before the religious leaders of Israel. We need to remind ourselves of, of that fact, that we're dealing not with uh, necessarily the political leadership, although, as we talked about last week, um, the Sanhedrin did have some uh, military or police uh, presence there on the Temple Mount. They had authority to set rules there. And even to this day, uh, they several of the rabbis have extended themselves. And, uh, and when you go into Jerusalem, before you can go up to the Temple Mount, there are large billboards giving warning to the Jewish people that uh, the leadership, the religious leadership of Israel, has not permitted Jews to go onto the Temple Mount given its current circumstances. Because it has not been sanctified, it has not been set, af- set aside, it has not... Uh, been purified. And so uh, there are large billboards uh, warning. And so even to this day, the religious leaders of Israel 
uh, still exercise that kind of authority even over a, the Temple Mount that they don't possess. They still have the recognized authority, and so the Romans granted that. And so, again and again, the disciples' response is twofold. Number one, we are going to obey God rather than man. And number two is the reason we're doing all this is because you murdered him, but God raised him from the dead. And confronting them again and again with not just a defiance, but a living Savior of their act of sin against him and of God's power over their sin, power over sin itself, and power over the wages of sin, which is death. Of course, we saw last week that they did not respond to the offer of salvation, the offer of forgiveness that comes through Christ uh, by means of our repentance uh, uh, for all of Israel and uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit. All of that they stopped their ears to. And once they heard this accusation against them, became furious and it says they were plotting to kill them. We look very briefly at Gamaliel's advice to Sanhedrin, having removed the apostles from them, from their midst. And some might say, well, how do they know what he said? But we know later on that other priests came to Christ, including many of this number, uh, and possibly even Gamaliel himself, Nicodemus, others that perhaps were there and gave faithful record to it. And of course, we also know that there was all likelihood a young protege of uh, Gamaliel there in the room by the name of Saul, who would one day become Paul, the missionary that traveled with Luke. So if anyone would have known what was said in there, the probability is the one who knew was Luke, the author of the book of Acts, by hearing the account from Paul directly. So we have all of this laid out before us and this warning. And the warning there is in uh, really verse 38 and 39. If it's of men, it'll come to nothing. But 39, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. And that's going to be foundational to what we're going to see uh, later on in the message this morning. You cannot even, you cannot overthrow it. You're fighting against God and the foolishness of, of warring against God, of resisting Him. And it's fascinating that Gamaliel uses this terminology. It is almost exactly the words that Jesus is going to use against one of his students. Why do you kick against the goads? Why are you fighting against God? When Paul or Saul is on the road to Damascus and is confronted by Jesus Christ in the vision, and the question is, why are you fighting me? Some of the, almost the very, uh, certainly the very spirit, but almost some of the same words that Gamaliel uses here in the Sanhedrin. If we're going against this, we're fighting against God. What are we doing? We're supposed to be the agents of God for our people. How dare we fight against God? We saw at the end of verse 40 that even though they agreed with the advice and liked it, they still found cause enough to threaten the apostles to disobey God, to beat them, and then to let them go. 
And that brings us to verse 41. Before we get into our text, let's, well, let's read the text and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you again for your word before us, for the testimony of those that it speaks of and gives a faithful record of. And Lord, we pray that as we consider their lives, the testimony not only of this event, but of their writing and the entirety of that experience of the early church, so you might uh, impress upon us, challenge us, strengthen us with what is requires to have this kind of faithfulness and this kind of spirit. Again, Lord, we're not really looking for a pep talk. And we know that that's not your intention, but that you might instruct us. For pep talk only lasts really as long as the excitement lasts. And Lord, help us to have deeper waters. That it might endure. When the excitement is gone, when the experience is become normative, Lord, give us a joy and a thrill because of the depth of our knowledge of your Son, of our salvation, of your work in our midst. From this time we've spent together in your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to an astounding passage of Scripture, and I have rehearsed it many, many times in many, many circumstances, so it is appropriate that I didn't get this far. There's no way I was going to spend one or two minutes on it last week. It's just too precious to come into. And as you can tell from our Bible reading earlier this morning, I intend to spend some time uh, from the pen of Peter to look into what it requires to be able to walk away from a beating rejoicing. And that's really my intent this morning, is to investigate and determine and then seek to apply to our lives, what does it take for me to have this kind of a spirit that I can take joy in suffering, that I can walk away with a smile on my face, even as, I, as it's through the foundation of a grimace maybe, but there's a smile breaking forward that I can be uh, considered something of an honor to suffer for my Lord's name. How can we do that? That is that's so anti uh, what all of us experience. It is, it is a break in the patterns of men. For it is our pattern to do one of several things, all of which Peter takes pains to tell us, do not engage in this because that is your old life. That is what you used to be. You've spent enough time there. You've spent enough time seeking revenge. You've spent enough time in anger and wrath. You've spent enough time in, in all of that activity and that spirit. It's time to rather have a very different spirit coming into your walk with Christ. But I want to look, first of all, at what it requires 
Strangely enough, we have to do this because it is so absent from our experiences I shared last week, what it requires to suffer for Christ. Because as, as, as strange as some of this sounds, as the word rejoicing sounds, and, and it, it confounds us, frankly, um, and we're going to study that. Where's the, what's the root that this attitude comes from? There, there's also a frightening part of this for us. And the frightening words for me are the counted worthy of suffering. Um, when we examine that kind of a phrase, we conclude that, well, am I have not been counted worthy to suffer? And why? What is it about my Christian experience that is always so comfortable and always so easy and, and always so passive that I'm not worthy of suffering for Christ. What is it about how we do our Christianity that puts us in a position that we have no enemies that want to do us injury and harm, both verbally through threatenings or physically through beatings and imprisonments? How is it that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and we do not? And this is not just an occasional thing that we encounter in one verse here and there, but it is a theme. It will be a theme throughout the book of Acts. We're going to come in to one of the first deacons and the first recorded martyr that we have of the church age of Stephen. Well, why don't I produce that kind of response from people? And I would contend with you that um, it's much like the home run hitter. We're all excited about the home run hitters, right? They're exciting. They hit it out of the ballpark, and we start and we keep count of those. But we also keep count of in baseball as strikeouts. And you know who leads the way in strikeouts? The home run hitters. Because they're swinging for the fence every time, and often they strike out. And you might say, so here's the worst that can happen to the plate, and here's the best that can happen to the plate. And why is it that these people experience these two things in the extreme? Because they're the result of the same activity. They are swinging with everything they got, not just to make contact. They're not trying to get bases. They're not trying to get on base. They're not trying to just put it in play. They're trying to hit out of the park. And what we find the early church engaged in in its activity was similar to that. There was no there was no halfwayness about their faith, of their expression of it, of their evangelism, of their exercise of obedience to God. There was no, well, I'm just going to do a partial swing and just make contact. You know, and God's got to be happy with that. Oh, no, they swang full blast and they hit it. And sometimes thousands came to Christ. How does that happen? How does a Philippian jailer and his whole household, how does Lydia and her whole household, how does Cornelius and his whole household come to Christ? How do we get that kind of conversion? Well, we don't 
Meliorality. We just swing full force and here's the gospel. Bam! I'm not holding back. I'm not going to, you know, you know, ease it into you. You know, I'm not going to try to, you know, gently lead you into the gospel. And if you look at the evangelists uh, throughout the times of our of national uh, <laughs> uh, of our national movements to Christ, of the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. Uh, you look at the movements of the evangelists of D.L. Moody and, and that era, you find them confronting people powerfully with the gospel message. No holes barred. I mean, they're just going after people. And people ran out of meetings screaming out of terror over what was coming because of their sin. They desperately needed a Savior. We look at that kind of evangelism and, and the focus and the, and the purpose of it. And it was a, we don't care who opposes us. We don't, we don't care if this offends you. We don't, this is the gospel. Because of that, we had great responses. But what we often don't realize is that many of those men suffered great persecution. And you read the accounts of Billy Sunday and the attacks that came on him of Charles Adam Spurgeon. We say, oh, the Prince of Preachers, we think he just coasted through his ministry and, and thousands filled the tabernacle there and that it was all easy peasy for him. But we don't realize that he was constantly under attack, not only from the world but even more so from jealous religious leaders. Sound familiar? Sounds like these guys, jealous religious leaders, just assaulted Spurgeon mercilessly. Billy Sunday was assaulted mercilessly. He is the one that moved the, the nation into a time of where we just says, we got to get alcohol out of this country. That was a result of that kind of evangelism. Did it create enemies? Sure, to this day. You ask people, prohibition worked. They'll say, no, it didn't work. It was a failure. Oh, no. You look at the crime statistics. You look at all of them. During the time of prohibition, they all went down, down, down. Divorce went down. Everything. Look at all those statistics during that time. But we paint that as a failed experiment in this country and we pin the blame on the evangelists like D.L. Moody, like Billy Sunday, who spoke vehemently against alcohol. We paint them negatively, historically. And they were the heroes of the faith. They were our examples. They are the guys that took Hebrews 11 and kept it going. And so we're missing the home runs because we're so afraid of the strikeouts. We're afraid of opposition. We're afraid of offending. We're afraid of getting beaten up. We're afraid of getting spit at. We're afraid of getting yelled at. We're afraid of being unfriended. We're so afraid of offense that we do nothing of any substance. And so we're over here meekly at the plate trying to knock little singles and playing small ball. Then we wonder why our churches shrink and why so few respond. 
We need some heavy hitters. And that means we need some believers that aren't afraid to suffer. I mean really suffer. Like losing your job kind of suffering. Like not having your family talk to you kind of suffering ever again. Like having neighbors throw rocks at your house and eggs and shoot guns at it and that kind of activity. Not just random, but purposeful because there's a place they keep speaking the truth and we don't like it. They keep pointing our sin and we don't like it. And we tell them to be quiet. And the problem is the church is listen to the world, tell them to be quiet. And instead of doing what the disciples say, they said, okay, we're sorry. We didn't mean to offend you. We'll just go into our little enclaves and we'll just tell each other the gospel. We'll keep it to our children. I remember when my daughter goes into her classroom and tells this little mormon girl, well, you're going to hell. And she got all upset and I got called in for a parent-teacher conference. I'm not going to apologize. She's a big hitter. Means you're going to offend some people. It's the truth. I'm not going to tell my child not to tell the truth. I'm not going to say, oh, don't say it. Don't tell them that. Oh, no. Swing for the fence. Maybe the whole family will come to Christ when they realize, oh, yeah, we're in a cult. They've tried to mainstream themselves, but it's a cult. I'm not afraid to tell them that. In fact, that's usually one of the first things I tell them. Why would you be in a... You know, you have to go in a Christian bookstore and you have to go to the cult section to find out about your religion. What does that tell you? I don't care if they're Jehovah's Witness or Seventh-day Adventists or, or Mormons. I just tell them that. I said, if you go to a Christian bookstore, go to the section called cults, you'll find books on your religion. What does that tell you? You're not Christian! They get mad. That's okay. They need to hear it. Can it be a strikeout? Sure. But it could also be the home run. That we all want to happen, but we don't want to have it happen without any risk. No risk of offense. No risk of, of having enemies. No risk of being ostracized, beaten, looked down upon, sneered at, laughed at, pointed at. So when I come to this passage, one of the things I want to be struck by is that these men were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And I asked myself, what was it about what they were doing that made them worthy of something that I'm not experiencing? And I have to conclude it was this fact that they wouldn't stop swinging for the fence with the gospel message. They would not ever stop. And we find out right away in verse 42, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were going to do it from house to house. They were going to do it in the Temple Mount, right where they were told not to, right in the face of the people that are ready to kill them for it. I'm not going to stop. You can't shut me up unless you take my life. And when you do it, you will see a face that shines while you're doing it. By the way, it's going to happen pretty soon in Acts, right? 
They did not cease. This counts them worthy of suffering. And so, I'm not inviting you to go out there and pick fights with people. You know, Peter tells us, let's go to 1 Peter, remember? You know, if you do nasty, mean, ugly things to people, if you steal from them or murder or any of those kinds of things, if you you steal from them, you're an evildoer. And I love the last thing on the list. You know, we go through verse 15, chapter 4 is where I'm at, 1 Peter. I love this list. Murder, yeah, that's bad. Stephen, yeah, don't be stealing. An evildoer, yeah, that's terrible. Or, here's number four on the list, a busybody in other people's matters. What? That's right up there with murder? Thought it would be adultery or something. No. Being a busybody in other people's matters, a gossip, if you will. One who can't stay at home, mind your own business. A meddler is what my margin has, he's here in Bibles. A meddler. Someone that just, you know, it's not enough that you ruin your own house, you've got to ruin other people's houses too. That's on the list there. It says, if that's why they're mad at you, then you deserve it. You should be ashamed. But they should hate us for no other reason than the fact that we are coming to them with a powerful message of Christ. We are living it consistently in our lives. And when they look at us, they say, why won't you come and run in our in our flesh like like?" You used to. Why don't you come and be lewd and lust and drunken and revelry and party with us and, and worship the idols with us? Why don't you do these things anymore? And they say, it's strange. You're, you're weird. Verse 4 of chapter 4. In regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. And so we have the message backed up by a life that is radically different than our worlds. And we have so desperately lost this, so completely been disconnected from this, that it's almost impossible for me to lead young people into even grasping this kind of truth. And that isn't just in the last few years. That is in the entirety of my ministry period. I'm now 52 years old. I've been in the ministry, uh, let's say, 30 years, give or take a couple. Um, and early on, I challenged young people. I said, you look like them. You dress, you, you dress like them. You look like them. Those are two different things, actually. Um, countenance, hair, makeup, piercings, tats. Um, but none of that is dressed yet. You haven't dressed yourself yet. Um, or undressing yourself. Um, your music Every single thing. And you know what the consistent argument I've heard from them? Well, I do these things so that I can reach them for Jesus. And just about then, my hands start coming like this. Do you not read your Bible? You don't go out there and be like them to reach them. You go out there and be totally different. If they're doing this, you do the exact opposite. You make them mad. You make them sit there screaming, what is wrong with you? That's what they ought to be saying about your house. This place is weird. You people don't fight. You don't drink. You don't smoke. You don't break your chairs over each other's heads. You're, you're, you're weird. 
You also don't watch TV. You don't sit uh, and, 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 you know, engulf yourself in it. On and on and on and on. They ought to come in and feel totally uncomfortable in your home. They should feel totally uncomfortable with your everything. Every aspect of your life. And this is what Peter's trying to say. This is the foundation of can count worthy to suffer for his name's sake is that you have left the world. You've spent enough time. You're, you're done doing what they want you to do. And this is Peter's message. He, I mean, this, is, this, this isn't written like the day after Acts. Right? Peter's an old man by now. When he writes First Peter, he's an old duffer. But doesn't it sound like it was written the day after what they just did in Acts? He never lost track. He never let go of the things that mattered enough so that he would be counted worthy of suffering. And so here he is saying, listen, Christ suffered for us. We're going to look at the foundation. <laughs> um, I, I, I got to stop preaching so much. Um, well, maybe I need to preach more. and Then I'll get through these a little faster. Um, he didn't lose tr- track of the foundation of it, but he also didn't lose track of the activity of it. What caused us? We're not going to listen and do what you want us to do. We're going to do what God wants us to do. Period. End of discussion. By the way, oh, well, that's quite the end of the discussion. By the way, you could be doing what God wants you to do too. Trust in Jesus Christ. Your sin, he died for. Got to touch your heart. Bring sorrow there. And now, as a believer, if you want to be really swinging for the fences, folks, in your life, it's time that we stop doing the will of the Gentiles and start doing the will of God. That we are spoken evil of. That we are insulted for following Jesus. And by the way, those insults are not just out there in the world. They're in the church. They're in your family. My wife shared the testimony of her brothers. To the, I don't know who you were talking to at the camp out. My brothers used to say, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Yeah, that kind of insults can come from home. Stop obeying God so much. Makes us uncomfortable. That's in a Christian home. Oh, that we would have reckless abandon in our obedience to Christ. For if that were the case, we would really have conversions that would confound the world. And we'd also have an army of enemies that would overwhelm if it weren't for Christ. We would lead the league in both categories simultaneously. Now, where does it come from? Where does that kind of desire 
derive from. And this, now the introduction's over. I'm getting to my message. Here we go. Um, there's a root. And that root um, is in Christ, of course. And so we're going to, everything you see is, is of Christ, of Christ, of Christ, of Christ. And one of the things we're going to find out is that, first of all, he has the message of Christ. When the message of Christ is central, this is our root. And so if we ground ourselves in this message and immerse ourselves in it, and we say, I don't want anything to chip away at this message. I don't want to compromise it on any corner. I want it to be gouging where it has to be gouging. I want it to be offensive where it has to be offensive. I want it to uh, be challenging where it has to be ch- I want it to be rebukeful when it, where it has to rebuke. And I want it to correct where it has I want the Word of God as my message. When we have committed ourselves to the message of Christ... And this becomes a root, and now I will not compromise it. You cannot make it go away. I will keep saying it, even to the very people who are there ready to kill me. You murdered Jesus! God raised him from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but that takes a lot of guts there to say that to the people who are ready to kill you. Now, They took it the next step, but the people wouldn't want to hear the next step. Remember last week? But they're saying to the people who are ready to judge them and whether they're going to kill them or not today. And their statement is, you murdered Jesus. God raised him from the dead. The message of Christ would not be compromised. They were wholly committed to it. And this, again, is the source of that beautiful counterworthy of suffering, of the joy. If you're committed to the message of Christ and you know its message, that there is Jesus suffered. Do you remember First Peter back here? I should just keep a thing at both places, a marker. First Peter, what, is Paul, what does Peter tell us? He says, listen, that's Second Peter, First Peter, there we go. Um, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. And he talks about what Christ did for us. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. He might bring us to God. And they immersed themselves in the message of Christ. And the message is so powerful, so so full and so complete, so gracious, so, so wondrous. How dare I even conceive that I would compromise it with my life, with my words. And so it... it keeps me from compromising when I immerse myself in the message, but it also strengthens me to rejoice in suffering. Jesus suffered. Look what he got. He provided salvation for the world. Maybe, just maybe, it requires me to suffer to save those people. My family. My neighbors. My co-workers. Maybe what it requires for the message to really impact their lives is for me to suffer because it required Christ to suffer to provide my salvation. Maybe there is an adding to, a completing the suffering of Christ the Bible talks about, that by my suffering, I can bring these to Christ. And this has been the power of martyrdom. That they suffered with joy because their Savior suffered for them And now I'm going to suffer for you. Not that I'm saving you, but I'm willing to complete his suffering in your eyes so that 
by seeing the joy in me in the midst of suffering, you can now begin to grasp the purpose of Christ's suffering. That I'm not here telling you this offensive, jaggedy, messy gospel story for my own good. I'm doing it because I love you. I'm willing to endure anything to get that message to you. You can beat me. You can spit at me. You can slaughter and rape my family. I'll keep telling you the message. You can take my life from me in little itty bitty increments and I will continue to share Christ with you in my countenance, in my words, in my actions. You'll see Christ. Because I know the message that Christ suffered for me. And that somehow in this equation of getting people to be shaken out of their sin, it demands that we grasp the cost of bringing, of saving us, the cost of, of bringing us the deliverance, that, we, that we, once we grasp how much it cost Christ, that I have to be broken over my sin, that my sin required that. My sin required Christ to suffer that. And if it requires me to look at someone else and say, my sin, he loved me so much, this, my brother, my uncle, my friend, my co-worker, my neighbor cared so much that my sin required him to suffer that much and he still wanted to save me. Maybe I was even the perpetrator of the suffering. And this is why wherever people have instituted violent persecution against the church. The church has multiplied, not added to, multiplied. Because they understood the message that it couldn't be compromised and that it required suffering for sin to be cared for. And if that was Christ's experience, it needs to be our experience. And so I don't suffer so that I can have this blessed place in glory. I recognize that that my suffering is probably, most likely, maybe inevitably required for them to get the picture of Christ by looking at me. It's about a willingness to swing the bat as hard as you can realizing that you may be booed and laughed at if you miss, but also recognizing that a hit is a run. You'll have people boo and laugh at you. Other people will say, well, next time. And some will come to know Christ, perhaps many on that day. They were committed to the message they're also committed to the mission of Christ. They, they rejoiced in their suffering for his name because they understood the mission. And remember that they were in prison. And as they were brought out of prison, they were told, listen, you get right back up there and uh, you stand in the temple, verse 20 of Acts uh, 5. You get up in that temple and uh, speak to the people all the words of this life. You have a mission to accomplish And God has invested the mission of his message in his people. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. 
You are it. He has invested in you the mission of the gospel. And these men understood that. And because they were committed to the mission that God had given to them, I'm going to obey God rather than man. That's foundational. Now, I am the obedience of, to God is this mission. And this mission has a priority over everything, including my well-being, including my uh, comfort, my, my security. All of that is, is worthless compared to this mission of Christ. That we go into all the world proclaiming the gospel. We must invest ourselves, commit ourselves to the message of Christ, yes, but also to the mission of Christ. That it's not that I get to, I have the message and I'm going to go over here and live holy. Um, my wife talked about this this morning. Up on my mountain. Yeah, I would love to take the little message, apply it to myself, and go hold it to myself up on the mountain in my private little enclave and hide till Christ comes. Um, I think there was a a character in a parable that did something like that, didn't he? Took his little talent. Ooh, Christ, uh, my master's going to expect it's back, so I better go hide it. No, the master expects you to multiply it. That requires you to commit yourself to the mission. And the mission is i got to invest the message in people. People who might hate me at the end or might follow Christ and become my brethren at the end. I don't know. It depends on how they respond to it. But my mission hasn't changed. And they are committed to the mission. It's like, we have got to get the message out. And praise God, we got let free. We're suffering. And now's an opportunity for people to see just how committed are we to the mission. And the church, by the way, the Western church at least, uh, has fully failed in that respect. All the government has to do to shut you off from your mission is to offer you a bribe. That's what the, Lyndon B. Johnson did. I think you should incorporate. We'll give you all these benefits financially and your taxes and things if you incorporate. And that's what's going on right now in our court system. What's been a big fight in our society is is because corporations aren't are their own people. And they can't hold religious beliefs. And this whole thing with Hobby Lobby is going to blow up. It's going to turn around. I know the court's sided with them right now. But you know how many churches are incorporated? Most. Because they listened to the little bribe from Lyndon B. Johnson. You know why he offered it? Because his biggest critics were churches. He wanted to shut them up, and it worked. We have failed our mission. Because as soon as the world says, we don't want to hear it, we go, sorry, okay. We'll keep it to ourselves. We'll only talk about Christ inside church. We won't do it out there. The mega church movement, the church growth movement, they call it, uh, which isn't growing a, the capital C church, it's just growing little ministries, um, is fully endorsed. We don't offend. We minister to it without offensing. And I'm like, well, then there is no message worth speaking. You've abandoned your mission. If we are committed to this mission, we understand its outcome. And it will be one of two things. And Peter, again, rehearses this. He says, listen, um, for them, 
for those who bring harm to you, those strikeouts, if you will, those who want to bring judgment, who, who bring harm and injury and, and reviling and all of that upon you, um, judgment's going to come to them. They're going to be judged. Do you know that in your mission? We're, it is part of our message that there's a judgment coming. And part of our mission is to understand that we only have so much time to accomplish it. A judgment is coming, and they're going to be judged. The church is going to be judged too, Peter says. And uh, the judgment is going to begin at the house of God, he says in chapter 4, verse 17. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And he talks about the righteous being scarcely saved. And that should make you shudder. Because in Peter's mind, if you're not suffering for the gospel, you're not really obeying the gospel, you're not fulfilling the mission that Christ has given to you, judgment starts at the house of God, that means it starts with you. And when the Bible uses those terms, scarcely saved, I immediately think of Hebrews and I go, oh man, there's some people in Hebrews that I don't know if they're going to be in heaven. How dare you, having tasted the heavenly gift, fall away. I start thinking of Galatians. If you, cru- you can't crucify Christ again. If you deny him before men, what did Jesus say? I'll deny you before your, my Father. And aren't we fundamentally des- denying him if we are abandoning the mission as well as the message? And there's also, by the way, another M here that brought that I think was the, the root of their joy. That they could keep doing this no matter the cost um, because of the message of Christ. Uh, they understood the necessity of suffering to deal with sin. And if Christ needs to suffer, so must we suffer to reach others. And so that part, that the methodology they understood, as, or I'm sorry, the, the mission they understood, that Christ had a mission and this is why we are still on planet Earth, is still to fulfill that mission of Christ, to reach the world the gospel. And there's also a methodology of Christ, the method of Christ. And we find Christ engaging individuals and um, variously, uh, and everybody wants to pick their favorite engagement of Christ with the lost people, um, but he's instructed us on our methodology. That you go in, that you can confront people with the gospel message and his statement is that some are going to hate you and say get out of town and you don't just stop you get out of town you go where there someone will listen and so if these guys aren't going to listen i'm going to run and go to who will listen now i want you to focus in on their methods because people want to abandon this method of reaching people the gospel i want you to notice the method in verse 42 of acts 5 This is daily in the temple and in every house. They did not cease doing what? Teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now remember, earlier in the book of of Acts, we saw that, that the church was a mixed multitude. What made it a mixed multitude? It was the miracles. Everybody wanted to come and participate in the power and in the miracles, but then when it came to obeying the message and, and making yourself accountable to God and having to walk the walk as well as talk the talk and, and being uh, of that number, many said, no, that's a little too much for me. So multitudes were there for the miracles, but that's not what 
the methodology that Christ really wanted them to focus on. And we have a lot of people say, oh, we need the miracles to save lots of people. We need to get back to that. No, let's look at it. What were they instructed to do in verse 20? Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What did they do when they came out? They did not cease to, what? Teach and preach Jesus the Christ. Were there miracles still going on? Well, certainly we know that that was still an activity. But if you want to really bring people to Christ, it requires you to speak the words of this life, to preach, to teach. That's the methodology of Christ. And you see this woman, the Samaritan woman, coming to him at the well. And, you know, he doesn't perform a miracle. Does Christ perform a miracle in front of her? No miracle. It's amazing, isn't it? Other than the fact that he knows something about her. That she's trying to hide. So here she comes and he says, give me a drink. You talking to me? (laughs) You want me to get you a drink? You know I'm a Samaritan woman? You're a man, obviously Jewish. You want me to get you a drink? Yeah, give me a drink. And she wants to engage him in some religious conversation, which he turns right back on her. She has these questions. He can answer them. And then he confronts her with her sin. If you knew who was asking you, you would ask me for living water. She wants to go into religious discussions. He wants to stay right on topic. And he's going to engage her, confront her with her sin, that there is a supernaturalness to that aspect. But he just knew something that everyone in town already knew. Everyone in town already knew who she was, right? Her sin. He comes and confronts her with it. Says, how many husbands have you had? And the guy you're with now isn't your husband. We have a huge movement, not just in this country, but in many, in fact, in Haiti, this is the biggest problem we have, is the, the this miracle move, this Pentecostal or charismatics that go in and they want to uh, generate all of this activity In the midst of it, they're not teaching anything. They're not preaching anything. The method of Christ is to speak the words of life. To preach and to teach. And as we engage it, if we have a confidence in the method, just as we have confidence in the message, I have a full confidence in the message of Christ. And so with joy, I'll keep sticking that message in people's faces no matter the outcome. Whether I swing and miss or, and I just make an enemy, although I sing, swing and connect and send it out of the ballpark and get a whole family saved. I'm not going to compromise because I have every confidence in that message. I have every confidence in my mission and so I'm not going to withdraw. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to shut up because I have every confidence in the mission. This is what God wants us to do. And I equally have every confidence in the method that we are called upon to speak the words of life. We are called upon to preach, to teach. This is the way of reaching them. And church after church is abandoning that. No, we need to bring them in and entertain them. We need a climbing wall. We need an arcade. We need a bowling alley. All those are in churches in this town right now. 
That is not the method of Christ that I have any confidence in at all. The method that God says to use. He shakes up, hey, I want you. He doesn't use, we're going to have a big breakout here. and The jail's going to be flattened by the time we're done tonight. And then they'll know. No, they sneak him out of jail. Didn't Christ sneak him out of jail? Don't you think flattening the jail would have been more impressive? And like, Whoa, what are we doing? <laughs> Maybe we no. He sneaks them out of jail to such a degree that the jailers didn't know they were gone. The prison doors weren't broken or anything. They were still secure. Everything's fine, but the apostles are gone. Something happened, but it wasn't very obvious. And what does Jesus tell them to do? Go perform miracles? No. Go cast out demons? No. He says, get up there and teach the people. That's how you turn a mixed multitude into a committed body of Christ. Speak the words of this life. And that's the method that God has called us to. And we keep wanting to dabble in the methods of the world. And, and I've done it. All right, I'm guilty. In the history of my ministry, I've done that. And, you know, we got to do mass marketing. We have to do make ourselves appealing. We have to, and everyone has to have a little emblem, you know. You have to have a symbol for your church. If you don't have the little emblem, and, you know, that emblem from Sagebrush, does it not remind you of the yin-yang thing? Every time I see it, I think, that's just yin-yang, you know, but they, it's sage. Okay. Anyway, got to have the little emblem. And I've been taught this in seminary, you know, you, this is how you market your church. I have an entire section of my library on how to market our church. And it was all written by, guess who? Marketers. Not from theologians who open God's word and says the method that God approves is that we take his word and we speak it. We teach it. We preach it. We communicate it. No one gets entertained into heaven because the way is through suffering. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a sadist or a masochist. I don't enjoy that, but I can have joy in it when I know with confidence the message is true, that the mission stands, and that the method is approved. I can go on with joy. Not whether there's a good outcome or not, and I'll hang my head if people reject that message and, and I become their enemy. I'll hang my head and I'll be sorry. But it's not going to change my swing. Because <laughs> as soon as that guy stops swinging for the fence, he stops being the home run hitter, doesn't he? He accepts the fact that there are the strikeouts with the home runs. He just accepts that. Is he glad for it? No, I'm never glad for the suffering, never glad for the opposition, never glad I made an enemy of someone. I don't sit there and put that notch on my belt. I hang my head, I'm sorry. Not sorry enough, though, to change my swing. No way. Because this is the only message that works. This is the only mission that's worth living. And these are the only methods that God approves. And so I can rejoice. Even... When I've made an enemy, I can rejoice. I'm not going to change my approach. I'm not going to change any aspect of it. And I can rejoice 
that they've gotten the truth, they, they've heard the truth, they've got the full message, I gave them the method, I gave it to them in the method that, that's, that God approves, and I fulfilled my mission to them. Now God's their judge. And now when he starts to judge in the church, I'll be exonerated with regard to that soul. But if I start meddling now with the message, if I start compromising it, if I start being less committed to the mission because I made an enemy over here or suffered a little bit, if I start trying other methods, because that didn't seem to work so good over there, there can be no joy in the suffering. There can only be doubt and bewilderment. When we have confidence in our message, confidence in our mission, confidence in our methodology, then we can joyfully accept suffering. Just like the home run king accepts the strikeouts as simply a necessity to the end. Which is, next time, I may hit one out of the park and we may see an entire clan come to know Christ. Cornelius and his whole household. All his servants, his wives, his kids, his kids' kids, his kids' In, all the in-laws, who knows how far that went. Lydia and her whole household. That was a businesswoman. Her whole household was probably huge. The jailer and his whole household. A little bit smaller group. Thousands on occasions. Sometimes just a few. But that's what we're swinging for. Let's not be tentative at the plate because we're afraid of suffering. Shame in this world. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. That gives us such a message of hope and of deliverance, but of suffering too, through Christ. And all that he suffered for us, Lord, we thank you. We thank you also for that mission that you've given us, knowing that if we just stop, that you're done with, you, you don't need us here. You're done with us. So Lord, help us to renew our commitment today and our confidence in the mission you've given us. And then, Lord, also that we see the world offering other methods that look like they work on the outside. They draw lots of attention, big groups. Lord, we wonder how many would stand before you at the judgment. So Lord, we have confidence, too, in the method that you have commanded us to do. To go and preach the gospel to every creature. Lord, help us to have the courage to conduct our lives and our conversation in such a manner to be worthy of suffering shame for your name. Lord, forgive us where we have been cowards more worried about whether people like us, more worried about our job, more worried about our society's acceptance of us, more worried about having friends than pleasing you. Forgive us, Lord, for being tentative or compromising your message. 
by your spirit, we pray you might find us walking this week more boldly and with greater rejoicing than ever because we have rediscovered the wonder of Christ. It's his name we pray. Amen.